Open your Bibles for the reading of God's Word to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter towards the end of the New Testament. And we'll be reading the first two verses of 1 Peter. Um, Lord willing, we'll be uh, encountering a study of 1 Peter here for a while. Uh, so pray about that. Pray for me, pray for you, and pray that we will all be uh, built up in our faith as our uh, study of 1 Peter begins and continues. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Let us hear God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Why should you and I take a closer look at the message that Peter wrote in this letter? You might think that's a silly question, but it really is important for us whenever we undertake a study of any passage of Scripture to ask, why am I studying this? Just to remind us of the importance of this part of God's Word. Of course, it's obvious we should do it because it's a part of God's Word, but uh, we also need to understand that there is a more, not a more important reason, but another important reason. Peter wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he wrote them because his fellow believers at that time were encountering persecution and suffering of various kinds. And I've decided that uh, we should look at this book now because of the times in which we live. It seems to me that the message of 1 Peter has a particular relevance and application for us specifically in the times in which you and I find ourselves. Peter wrote to his fellow believers in Christ at a time when both Peter and the recipients of his letter were already suffering persecution for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you know about the the fact that the Roman Empire was holding uh, the ultimate sway over everything uh, during the time of Christ and the apostles, and that that persecution was becoming stronger and stronger. More than likely, Peter wrote this letter in 64 AD. You may remember that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And Peter was already undergoing hardships and his recipients were undergoing increasing hardships because of their faith. Peter wrote uh, his letter, as he says here, to the dispersion, which will 
explain uh, a little bit here. Uh, we'll explain it in a minute. But the fact that he was writing to these believers scattered around in these seven, uh, six different areas. I forgot how many now. One, two, three, four, five areas of Asia Minor. More like regions of Asia Minor, what today is present-day Turkey. He was writing it specifically to point out to them the importance of standing firm for glorifying God and living holy lives even when it was becoming increasingly difficult to do so because of increasing persecution. Now, with that in mind, I felt like, you know, that's beginning to happen to us, isn't it? In all kinds of ways, we're seeing things in the news and hearing about things locally that we never would have dreamed would happen in terms of how Christians are being treated. I just saw, uh, as, as an example, someone this week that was reading the Bible in a public place on a college campus uh, for a meeting that was taking place there. And uh, as he read the Bible, uh, people from the opposing side of believing in the Bible uh, were protesting. One got on one side of this fellow who was reading the Bible on a microphone, and one got on the other side. One had a bullhorn, and the other was yelling, uh, both right in the ears of this poor fellow who was reading the Bible to the people there who had assembled because they wanted to hear the Bible. Not a church, but it was preparation for uh, some special event there. Well, finally, as he was reading, someone uh, grabbed the Bible and took it away from him and was seen later tearing the Bible up and taking one of the pages of the Bible and chewing it up. Now, again, would we have seen that a generation ago? Not likely. But things like that, just little examples of that all over, are happening every day. Certainly true on college campuses where Christians are trying to, <clears throat> to live out their faith in an environment that was not friendly towards the Christian faith. Things like that are happening increasingly. Things like that were going to be happening increasingly to Peter's audience. Because, as I said, in just a few years from when Peter wrote this, the whole city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Romans. That, that's just how one way. And then, of course, the emperor at that time was Nero, and he's pretty infamous for his uh, time as the emperor. He was said to have uh, played the fiddle while Rome burned, and the cause of the Rome burning, he claimed, was the Christians had set Rome on fire. He blamed it on them. So conditions today in our nation and in the world at large are such that we who love Christ are likely going to experience hard times. Now, you and I already suffer. We suffer for different reasons. I was thinking yesterday about, well, you know, some of the reasons I suffer are because of me. <laughs> I've met the enemy, and the enemy is me. And I, for my own boneheaded decisions and actions, 
There were times when I've had to be accountable and pay the price for that. Well, I think we all could say that. But that's not the only source of suffering. Some things are beyond our control. Illnesses and so, and so on that we, we have that come out of the blue. <coughs> and also the fact that we have uh, things happen to us like uh, accidents, injuries, and so on. But I'm thinking, thinking more specifically about the environment in which Christians have to live and how we are going to, we have been to some extent, but we're going to in more than likely see greater suffering. So my concern is not only for you and for me, but even more, my concern is for our children and our grandchildren. How can we prepare them to fight the good fight when it's going to be harder to do than it has been in the life of our nation? I think First Peter has wonderful counsel for us in that regard. So concerning the book of First Peter, someone has put it this way. Peter writes a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. So we're going to look at this traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims and how they can strengthen our faith if we take its counsel to heart. The opening two verses begin uh, Peter's answer. And as often as the case, the, the opening verses of a book of the Bible, a lot of times we just skim right over those, don't we? Oh yeah, Peter wrote this, he wrote it so-and-so, and off we go. But look carefully at these two verses. Notice with me, first of all, that the author of this letter is qualified to teach us about suffering. To get your interest in this, let me ask you a question. Who do you want to teach you about suffering? Who do you want to teach you about suffering? There are some people that you would quickly say, well, I know who I don't want. But I think we've turned to an expert when we've turned to Peter. He was a disciple. He tells us here that uh, indirectly that he was a disciple because a disciple was a follower of Jesus. And we know that he was one of the original 12 disciples. He heard the teaching of Christ. He heard the gospel. He heard what it meant to follow Christ in faithfulness and to serve Christ. He observed the mighty works of Christ. He experienced uh, some amazing things. The Mount of Transfiguration, other miracles. But one that really stood out to me was this. In Matthew 16, Peter declared before Jesus and the other disciples, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus accepted that answer. Blessed are you because heaven re revealed this to you. That didn't come from yourself. You gave the right answer about who I am. And that was wonderful. That was a high point in many ways for Peter. But then what happened right after that? Jesus said that he was going to suffer and die and be raised again three days later. And Peter stood up and said, absolutely not. This shall never happen. 
And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, let's think about that. You know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes, Peter. This was revealed to you by heaven. And then Jesus says, almost in the next words, get behind me, Satan. Shows you how in Peter's life, and I think we can see it in our lives, maybe not in that extreme, we can see it in our lives where we can do something that we know is good and pleasing to God and say good things in one moment, and then we can turn right around before you've had a chance to almost catch your breath, and then you do something really spiritually dumb. So we should identify with him as a disciple, but he also was an apostle. Not only a disciple, a follower of Christ, but an apostle. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle was sort of a technical term. It literally means one who is sent. But there were some men who were called by Christ to establish and develop the first generation of the Christian church. They were the apostles. There were a number of the original 12 disciples that became apostles. The apostles uh, wrote much of the New Testament. In order to be an apostle, one of the major criteria was you had to have seen the risen Christ. And of course, Peter did. He was one of the first ones to see the risen Christ. And he was qualified because he was called on by Christ, along with the other apostles, to lead the early church and to write much of the New Testament. With that calling, that equipped him and authorized him to be deserving of our attention. And so the question I ask, who do you want to teach you about suffering? It ought to be someone who's known a little bit about suffering. Peter would later uh, die for his faith. He was crucified, some say upside down at his request. Not long after he wrote these letters, first and second Peter. But being qualified means he knows what he's talking about and he has the authority from God to teach us how we should live our lives these days. Peter's life was always a work in progress. And that's the point. God called him to Christ and, G and Peter followed his savior through failures, sufferings, and finally persecution and even death. And if anyone knows how to counsel believers about facing sufferings and persecution for their faith, it was Peter. <coughs> Excuse me. We need to listen carefully to what Peter has to say in order to strengthen our faith for times when we will encounter trials and we will likely be mocked or made to suffer for our fidelity to Christ. And we must teach our younger generation what it really means to follow Christ. Now, I'm not trying to be gloom and doom here. I'm just looking at the way the world is right now. And of course, God can intervene and suddenly take in, uh, bring about 
tremendous changes. A revival could sweep across our land. We should all pray for that. Because really, nothing short of a true revival, in my humble opinion, is going to keep us from going down a dark path that we all deserve as a country. Now, notice the recipients of this letter. The author of this letter knew something about suffering, and he's qualified to teach us about it. Secondly, the recipients of this letter were suffering Christians like us. And I, I could put it this way, these recipients, the people Peter was writing to, were people who belonged to God, and by belonging to God, they did not belong to the world. By belonging to God, they did not belong to the world. There's here a, a really a great description of any Christian in what he says. He chose them for salvation, Peter says, to those who are elect exiles. And then later he uses the word, verse 2, of foreknowledge. God planned our salvation. Anybody that's a Christian then or now could say, the reason I'm a Christian is not because I woke up one day and just had an epiphany or I got it in my own head. You know, I think I need to be a better person so I can make it to heaven. So I'm going to just make a, a lot of changes in my life that God I know will be happy with me and, and uh, he'll be impressed and he'll say, oh, yeah, you, you need to come. Come on into heaven. No, it goes beyond that goes before that, way before that. Uh, Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You and I had nothing to do with our salvation. Now, we do have responsibilities to repent and believe the gospel, but if we do repent and believe the gospel, it's because we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that is the reason why all these things start happening. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. As Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. And so he's telling them here, you, are, you Christians are people who were elect. Now, I know that that word elect or chose is a, a word that a lot of people just cringe and horror about. It's a beautiful word to me. And I hope it is to you. For reasons known only to God, he saw fit to save those whom he saved. Apart from us, but for his glory. And he had the right to do that. He has the right to do with his creatures whatever he wants. Now, chosen by the foreknowledge of the Father. The word foreknowledge there we could translate prognosis. You know, like a doctor, when the doctor says, uh, his prognosis is good, meaning what's coming ahead looks very favorable and encouraging. Looking ahead. God's foreknowledge, though, is more than an educated guess about what might happen concerning us. This kind of foreknowledge is personal. God doesn't just know about those whom he has chosen. He knows them. He knew me before I ever knew him. He loved me before the foundation of the world. 
The only reason I know that now is because he brought me to faith in Christ. He enabled me to believe the gospel message. He worked his saving power in me. The power of the cross, as we just sang. And so Peter is saying, look, God is behind all of who you are. Do you think that when you go through times of persecution, no matter how severe, that God's going to just turn away from you and abandon you because things got too hard for him or you? Not if he chose you before anything else even existed, including you. Romans 8.29, of course, is Paul's beautiful statement about this foreknowledge uh, where <clears throat> Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, and he goes on to say, those who he called, he, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's saying that from the eternity past, God chose you for a life that will extend to eternity future, and it will be wonderful. We already see some of that wonderful life that he's given us now, abundant life, as Jesus put it. It's just, that's just a taste, though, of what's coming, see? All of that's behind the God who is going to be with you during your life here on earth as a pilgrim. Chosen by the foreknowledge of the Father, chosen through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, it says, and that's a present tense. Sanctification is a process. It's an ongoing thing. Coming to faith in Christ and being justified by him is once and for all. But that's a one-time one act. But sanctification is a process. And so he's saying here, the Father chose you. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, enabling you to grow more and more holy, which Peter will emphasize in this letter. And then he says, you're chosen for the obedience, for obedience to the Son. Notice the triune nature of God, all mentioned here in salvation. The work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Son. And he says that we are uh, chosen and, and uh, saved for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Why are we saved? Well, we're saved to glorify God. How do we glorify God? What I said earlier, obedience to the, to the commandments of God, doing God's will. And we learn how to do that increasingly over time as we grow in our relationship to Christ. Sanctification, the process. Now, all of that is done because of the work of Christ. We are obedient Christians. Two more times in chapter one, he's going to mention obedience. Chapter 14, uh, verse 14 and verse 22. I won't take the time to read them now, but those are important to, to note. Obedience is such an important part of the Christian life. And we need to see how well we are doing in that. Am I obeying your commandments? That's one reason we read the law of God on a regular basis. To know how we're doing so that we can deal with those things as we need to. And sprinkled, sprinkling with his blood. Hebrews 9 talks about how the sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of his blood, 
fulfills the principle of sacrifice necessary for forgiveness. The Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant said through the sacrifices, blood had to be shed. Blood had to be sprinkled on the, the priests to remind people it's only through the death of a substitute that you can be forgiven. And the New Testament, the New Covenant says all of that was leading up to and fulfilled by the death of Christ for you and me. He was our substitute. His blood was sprinkled and shed for our salvation. So they belong to God, but they don't belong to this world. They are, look at these words here. Very specific term that he uses when he says that they are elect exiles. Exiles. Similar words that we might think of are uh, aliens, not those kind of aliens, but aliens from another country, strangers, refugees. The best example I can think of <clears throat> right now is, is uh, in uh, the situation with the war that's going on between Ukraine and Russia. So many millions of Ukrainians have fled the country, understandably. They're, they're scattered out to other countries. Some have even come over to America. And so wherever they are now is not where, they, where their homeland is. They're in a temporary place. At least they think it's temporary. Some may decide, I'm going to stay here for good. But think about what Peter is saying here. I'm writing to exiles who are scattered in these different regions of Asia Minor. Why are they scattered? Commentators differ over whether these were Jewish or Gentile readers or recipients. I'm pretty sure, comparing all the different options here, that uh, these are more than likely uh, Jewish uh, exiles. They were living in Jerusalem. The persecutions began. You read about it in the book of Acts. And they fled to all these different areas. Peter was a Jew, and his primary ministry was to the Jews, as Paul's was primarily to the Gentiles. And so here they are, and he's calling them exiles. In chapter 2, verse 11, this is one other example. There's a couple of other ones. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That was their identity at this point. And it's our identity as well. This is not where we really live as Christians. Physically, we're here for a time. But we're exiles. We belong to a different kingdom. We're not from here, and we're going to leave here. Just like Peter's people. This is not where you're from. It's not where you're headed. It's not where you're going to stay. You are headed to your real home, your homeland, your fatherland, if you will. That's heaven. Paul told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we await the coming Savior, of course. Now, it's vital to keep in mind where home really is, especially as we experience rough waters in our journey home. 
Where is home? Keep remembering that. So this is a biblical description of all Christians. This is who we are. We're chosen by the foreknowledge of the Father. We are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We're chosen for obedience. For obedience to the Son whose blood was shed for our everlasting good. Last thing to note, and that's the greeting. The greeting of this letter encourages us in our suffering. The, we just saw the recipients of this letter were suffering Christians like us, and the greeting encourages us in our suffering. Here's something we really can look over to quickly. Last part of verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Oh yeah, we say that all the time. But do we always remember what special words they are? What precious words they are for us? Think of the encouragement that grace provides. Remember what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor. God's goodness to us when we deserved the very opposite. We deserved judgment for our sin. God in his grace gives us eternal life. He pardons what we deserve. It is his overflowing forgiveness and his faithful provisions to every believer in Christ. And it is granted when those believers were hell-bound sinners and deserving of his wrath and curse. Remember Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins, but God in his mercy and grace made you alive in Christ. And then once God's grace overtakes our lives and we receive salvation from our sins, we are able to draw upon that grace over and over again in every situation in our daily living. We're saved by grace, but we continue to live by grace. And that includes our sufferings. Grace for our sufferings. One of the great Christian poets uh, once said, grace grows best in winter. Grace grows best in the winter of our lives, not just in the summer or the spring or beautiful fall like we've had. Paul was the perfect example of that. Remember how Paul said he had these visions of heaven, the glorious visions that God enabled him to have. Nobody's ever experienced before in, in quite that way. And Paul said, because of those surpassing, the surpassing greatness of those revelations, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Don't know what that was, it doesn't matter, but it was suffering. It was suffering and he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that so that God might show him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power, my power is made perfect in your weakness. If you rely on God through whatever you're going through in your life, your power God's power, I should say, is going to be made very abundant and clear in the very midst of your weakness. Lord, I can't keep this from happening. Lord, they're, gonna, they're treating me badly. 
Well, because I believe in, in Jesus. But your grace is sufficient. Your word says so, and I'm going to live by that. And not only that, but that grace and that, but that grace comes with peace. The peace of God. You can be in, in total contentment knowing that whatever hardships you're enduring, you have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Meaning, whatever happens to you, you're at peace with God through faith in Christ alone. He is our peace. And he gives us peace. And that peace enables us to say, look, if I put my head on my pillow tonight and don't wake up in this world, it's, it's going to be wonderful. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fear death. I have God's peace. Grace and peace. And notice he says, may those be multiplied to you. You know, it's not like you're only given a quota of grace or peace. Okay, Jim, you've, you've exhausted your supply of grace. You've used it all up and you've got a lot more time left in this world. I just happen to tell you that. But no more grace and peace. We've run out. No. Multiplied. Infinitely multiplied. You know, they, they say what it's like to, to uh, take a penny a day and double it every day and how much you'll get after 50 years or whatever. It's unbelievable. I just thought of that, so I can't tell you what the answer is. But anyway, uh, it's a lot. You know, uh, that compound multiplying is an amazing thing. But that's what we receive from the Lord. Jesus said, peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled. You have my peace. If you love Christ and you want to do his will in your life, just understand you're going to face times where your faith is challenged. And you're going to do one of two things. You're going to wilt or you're going to work and state that faith of yours and stand on it, whatever the implications might be. Can we do that? Are we able, are we ready to do that? I'm simply saying we always need to be ready for that, no matter what is going on in the world around us, but even more so right now. Because the America that many of us grew up in is not the America we have now. And it's not going to continue that way, uh, more than likely, without God's intervention. We just need to be ready. And we need to teach our children and our grandchildren how to be ready. One of the best ways to do that, teaching any part of the Word of God will certainly help. But one of the best places to do that is this letter, because that's what it's given to us for. So I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to equip yourself better than you already may be equipped to handle whatever comes and to equip our children and our grandchildren and any other children we might have uh, influence with so that they can stand strong and we can stand strong when encountering sufferings for Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> <coughs>
Father, we thank you that you are our faithful God. You're able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine, exceedingly more. Strengthen our faith. Give us, Lord, a, a, a realization that we need to continue to grow in grace, that we need to continue to learn and equip ourselves and others to be able to give a good accounting of themselves and their witness and life before you. May we, Lord, not wilt under pressure. May we be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. May you be our mighty fortress as we fight the good fight of faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.